you would be, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. As you're turning there, just kind of in the way of helping us all kind of get acclimated to where we are today in Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah has been characterized as being a focus on judgment due to Israel's disobeying the law. Um, it's important for us to realize that God's judgment included the northern kingdom being destroyed by Assyria as well as the southern kingdom, Judah, being taken captive and exiled to Babylon. Now, this exile to Babylon hasn't happened yet. Isaiah is basically telling them about things that are going to happen, and we've seen that. When we get to chapter 40, the tone changes, though. The tone changes to a focus on grace and a coming salvation. Um, the hard part for me, maybe not for you, but definitely for me, is figuring out, okay, when do these things happen? Uh, because some of them happen at the first coming, some of them happen at the second coming. Some have already happened, but some haven't. And so one of the things that struck me as I was studying these chapters 40 through 44 is the fact that much of Isaiah's message really is to a future generation. Babylon doesn't take the southern kingdom captive until probably about 200 years after Isaiah dies. And one of the thoughts that came through my mind as I was realizing this is that this group of Jews is probably kind of looking at their circumstances, looking at the fact they went into exile. And you may not remember, but one of the things that was, I think, in the previous chapter, God said he was sending them to Babylon, that that was part of his plan to protect them. And so looking at it through man's eyes, we would say, well, God either isn't able to protect them or he doesn't care enough about them to protect them. And so throughout this, Isaiah is trying to give them comfort as they're trying to reconcile, God put us in Babylon. And so God's responded through his word, describing his power, and also kind of interwoven into this is this ongoing trial concerning idols. Um, I didn't realize Isaiah had so much to say about idols, but if you think about it, every time we turn from God, we turn really to an idol. And so Isaiah is confronting that. Um, had an interesting thought this week. Um, I think some of you know that I've said I really can't grow very many types of plants, but one I can grow really good is stickers. I don't know why, but they seem to just propagate. And I was mowing this past week, and I couldn't believe how many stickers were in my yard. And you don't even have to do anything, and they pop up. Well, that's kind of how it is with idols. We hardly have to do much of anything. We just have to forsake God, and all of a sudden they pop up. And so... Israel's been fighting with that, and God keeps bringing up one key point, and that is the idols not only don't know anything, but they can't tell the future. They can't tell what's happened in the past and how it fits, but they also can't tell the future. Now, last week, as we finished chapter 43, one of the things that was described is Israel's sins. And the very last few verses, God says, if you think you're going to be justified by yourself, think again. Because your first fathers, whether that be considered Adam or Abraham or Jacob, 
as well as your teachers have all transgressed. And so one of the things that I liked in one of the commentaries, he said the nation wasn't merely sinning, it became the very opposite of what it was meant to be. God had chosen them, he had called them out, and they were supposed to be his witnesses. And you would want witnesses to have impeccable character, but they didn't. We don't. We're made out of the same stuff, and God still uses both Israel as well as us today. And so with that as an introduction, we pick up in chapter 44, where God has just finished telling them they can't justify themselves based on their actions, because their actions all the way back to their roots, their first father and their teachers, they have violated and transgressed against God. And so verse one of chapter 44 says, yet now, Hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour, out, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. They shall spring up as among the grass. Reminds me of the stickers there. As willows by the watercourses, one shall say, I am the Lord's, another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have I not told thee from that time, and have I not declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. And so, Isaiah transitions from telling them that they can't be justified by themselves. And he says, yet now, and he then identifies very quickly the fact that Jacob or Israel is God's, is God's servant who he's chosen. He says, oh, Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. That's how he introduces verse one of chapter 44. Now, last week I mentioned the fact that there is routinely in Isaiah a chiastic structure. And some in our class know exactly what I'm talking about because we've covered it before. For some, it may be kind of new. And so let me just kind of describe it again. In our Western thinking, at least the way I was taught in English and grammar class, Typically, if you were going to write a paper or something, you had an introduction, and then you had two or three paragraphs that were point one, point two, point three, and then you had a conclusion. And hence, I think many of us have heard the phrase, give me the bottom line. The bottom line is what's in that final conclusion. What, what's your point? What's your main point? And so that's the bottom line. When well, Hebrew literature, and I didn't know this for many, many years, they didn't do it the same way that we do here in America or in the West. They would do it by making a point, then they might make a second point, but the main point, what we would call the bottom line, is right in the middle. 
And so if I had five points, point one, point two, point three, and then it would repeat point two and then point one. And so the first thing in this couple of verses I want to point out is God is identifying Jacob and Israel as God's servant that he has chosen. You see that in verse one, he says, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So then at the end of it, in verse two, he says, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeserun, whom I have chosen. And we'll get back to that name, but that's kind of the sandwich that's being made, the idea of Jacob and Israel being God's chosen servant. So what is the main point that's sandwiched between those two statements? Okay, God made them. Anything else in there? Okay, God's going to help them. Anything else? They were God's chosen. Okay, and that's kind of the, the sandwich is the God's chosen. Okay, because of that, God made them. I thought it was kind of interesting. God wanted to add some emphasis. He said, I even formed you from or in the womb, and I will help you, so fear not. And so the main point that's being brought out here between these two statements is God formed Israel. God made him in the womb. He is constantly working with Israel and will help him. And so fear not. Now, why would he tell him to fear not? They're humans, okay. <laughs> And what, and what's about to happen? We're we're humans, and what's about to happen here? We're not following our obligations Okay, one of the things that that was just mentioned in the previous chapter is we've sinned against God, so that would be reason to fear. Another reason to fear, yes, sir. They're about to be judged. They're. That was the exact thing. Thank you for reading my notes for me. <laughs> They're about to be judged. That's not a pleasant thing. I mean, think about our country. We see in our society a lot of things that we believe are evil and that are forsaking God. If someone got up and said, thus saith the Lord, America, you're going to be judged, what would go through our minds? I can tell you the first thing that would go through mine, this can't be good. God's judgment is never a pleasant thing. That's probably some of the thing, same things that Israel is dealing with. Their mind is thinking, hey, the first chapters of Isaiah, he's mentioned God's judgment. If his judgment is coming now, this can't be good. And yet God says, I formed you from the womb. I made you. I'm going to help you. So don't fear. I don't know about you, but my human nature, if I hear judgments coming, is to almost do the exact opposite. You know, what, what's going to happen? How bad is it going to get? I'm sure some of those thoughts were going through those in Isaiah's time. Now, the last phrase of this, the main point is God's going to help them and they're not to fear. But the last phrase, instead of Israel, we have Jeshurun. And I don't know that I'm pronouncing it right, but that's my best attempt of it. Anyone have any clue? why that name is used instead of Israel. Uh, fear of people. It's, a, it's a, an affectionate name for people. Okay. It's a, a term of endearment 
for his people, to quote what John is saying, and I believe that's true. And I asked Brenda if she would help me with that. This is a very obscure name. It's only used four times in the Bible. It's used in Deuteronomy 32.15, 33.5, 33.26, and right here. According to some of the things I read, it has to do with them being an upright people or an upright one or a righteous one. And so one commentary pointed out as um, really being a idea or a, a following the idea of progressive sanctification. If you think about it, Jacob as a root name was really tied to being a scoundrel. And then as he became Israel, he became really uh, not only the first father of the nation, but also in God's eyes, a prince. And then Jeshurun has, according to you know, the things that I saw there, the idea of him becoming a righteous and an upright one, which is kind of what happens to us. We start out just like everyone else, sinners. We come to know God's grace. We're saved by his grace. And the New Testament tells us we're a royal priesthood. And as God works in our life, we become progressively more like his son, Jesus, become conformed to the image of Christ and become a picture of someone that's more upright than what our original character ever was. And so here in the middle of this, God's making the point he's going to help Israel, but he also makes the point that Israel has changed. They went from being called Jacob to being called an upright one. And so that introduces us to verse three through five. God has basically consoled them with the idea that he's gonna help them and they're not to fear. And then he says in verse three, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon thy seed, my blessing upon thine offspring they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. Another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. And so, in verse 3, God is intervening, and he's basically giving them a picture of a dry and thirsty ground. Does this bring back any thoughts or memories of other passages in the Old Testament about Israel? Anyone have any, any thoughts on something very similar, Roxanne? Okay, so there's probably multiple places in the Old Testament where Israel is described as being a desolate place that then becomes a beautiful, flourishing place. The one that came to my mind along that same idea was in Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones. And I'll just read a little bit to you. You don't have to turn there, but you know, Isaiah 37, I'm going to read 1 through 3, verse 11, and then 13 and 14. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, talk about Ezekiel, and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord, set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry, and he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? 
And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. And then he skips down and it says, Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. And then skipping down to the last phrase, it says, And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. <coughs> Excuse me. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. And so here we have a parallel idea in Isaiah chapter 44. He's basically describing the fact that I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon dry land or dry ground. And so Israel, in many ways, as they're going through God's judgment, becomes exactly what Ezekiel described, a valley of dry bones. I think if we were an adult before 1948, which I wasn't even born yet, I'll just help you with that, so you don't even have to calculate it. But if we were an adult at that time, one of the big key questions was, how does God's word come true because Israel doesn't even exist as a nation. And we look today and we saw just yesterday where they were attacked, but they're a big nation now. In fact, there's more Jews in Israel today than anywhere else in the world. Didn't used to be that way until probably in the last decade. And so God is picturing them as this dry and thirsty ground and God says he's going to pour out his spirit upon them and they're going to live. Very similar to what we see in Ezekiel chapter 37. So they're going to live. What's going to be their reaction to God pouring out his spirit upon them and pouring out this water to quench their thirst. Doesn't uh, pouring out the water and the spirit to uh, quench their thirst, doesn't that, I thought I had studied previously that that pretty much means that they uh, aren't spiritual at the moment and that he's going to talking about giving them the Holy Spirit to save their souls because you're correct that they are spiritually you know not alive to the things of God that they're pretty much dead to that um, his spirit being poured out upon them definitely has very similar um, application to when God poured out his spirit at Pentecost on the church um, but keep in mind for everyone's benefit the church and Israel are two distinctly different entities. Israel is a bloodline through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church is Jew and Gentile alike for those that accept Christ. And similarly, and I think this is what Linda's getting at, similarly, there will come a time where God will pour out his spirit upon Israel. At Pentecost, it was poured out upon the church. Now, the other thing is, is they were, um, I thought I heard my name. John. I was going to say, Christ made the invitation in the Gospels. He said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He's basically repeating that invitation that was being given to Absolutely. And so the invitation was given at Christ's first coming. The Jews rejected that, and so it was poured out upon the church. But there will come a day where it is poured out upon Israel. And that day is, I think, not too far in the future. 
And I say that from the standpoint that it's a lot closer now than it ever was before. Linda? Well, you're not as dry, literally, as they used to be either. <laughs> they are moving toward a point where I think they're going to accept their Messiah. In fact, Zechariah tells us that they will see him and they'll mourn because they'll see the nail prints in his hands and they'll realize that they had rejected Messiah when he came the first time. But here, God's talking about the fact that he's going to revive them as a nation. To the nation, when they come back from exile from Babylon, much of this they will feel is fulfilled. However, I don't think this portion about God's spirit being poured out upon them is gonna happen until the second coming. That's just my own personal understanding of it. And I could be wrong, but that's my understanding of it. He says, I'm gonna pour water, this is verse three, pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. And I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. What is the Jewish response to that? Pardon me? They glorify God. They're supposed to. They don't quite do that, and we don't either. He definitely has to go back into talking about the idols again because they still want to go back to that. But there's something else on their mind. What else is on their mind? Last part of verse 3. God's kind of giving them a hint that he's understanding their concern. And what's he going to take care of? Say that again. Okay, thank you. You gave me a little more information where I could understand which word you were using. He mentioned descendants, and I was getting confused. The idea is, is their children, their descendants. If you think about what matters to us once we have children, we'd rather something bad happen to us than to our children. The same is true of the Jewish people. You look here, he says, my blessings will be upon thine offspring. And he goes even further. He claims blessing upon them the exile is not going to wipe them out. If you think about the northern kingdom, Assyria had went into the northern kingdom and had destroyed it so thoroughly that most believe those <coughs> tribes of Israel exist today, but they have no clue who they are because they were so you know, dispersed and integrated into Gentile cultures. The southern kingdom is not so. The southern kingdom, Babylon, left somewhat intact, and so they know many times who they are as Jewish people. But their concern is for their offspring, and he says that they're going to be blessed. Also, I think it's interesting in verses 5, verse 5, he says that not only are they going to be blessed, they're going to want to be identified. It will be an honor to be tied to Jehovah. And so God's Spirit's poured out on them, and they're glad and honored that they are identified as God's chosen servant. That brings us then to the fact that God's identifying for them who he is and the fact that he's only, he is the only true God. And so in verse 6, he picks up and he says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And so he highlights the fact he's going to intervene on their behalf. He's going to pour out water upon them. And if you're like me, I can think of times when I was extremely thirsty and nothing quenched my thirst like water. 
no sodas, no tea, no other thing seemed to have the same effect as water. And God's saying he's going to pour that upon them. He's going to pour out his spirit upon them. He's going to protect their offspring. And they're going to identify with him. And then he highlights the fact that Jehovah is the king of Israel. Personally, I believe this is an identifier of the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come to rule and reign over his people. And so the first thing that you see in verse 6 is the fact that thus saith the Lord, the king of Israel. This is in honoring of the Davidic covenant where God has promised that David's throne will never end and that will come to fulfillment through Messiah. The second one is he identifies as being their redeemer. And I thought that was kind of interesting because Jesus fulfilled that spiritually at his first coming. Now they were looking for a political redeemer, a political king, a political solution where they would rule and reign over all the other nations. That hasn't happened yet. That will happen at the second coming. And then it mentions, I am the first and the last. Who goes by that title? Jesus, exactly. Yes, sir. Definitely a big contrast. When Pilate put the inscription, King of the Jews, they claimed only Caesar. Jesus goes by the title, the first and the last. If you were to turn to Revelation, which you don't need to, but I'm going to read it to you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. John, speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And the only one that meets that description is Jesus. And so what we have here is in one verse, Isaiah, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, identifies Jesus' first coming, Jesus' second coming, and the title that he is known. And so it's, in some ways, past, present, and future, uh, where he's identifying Jehovah and Jesus are one. Both are deity. Uh, Jesus is 100% man and 100% deity. And so God is the only God, and he finishes verse 6 with beside me there are no other gods so he's starting to introduce again this contrast between the one true god and idols and he starts by identifying the fact that jesus the messiah is truly part of the trinity part of the one true God. So that then brings us to the trial. He keeps coming back and setting a courtroom scene. And so verse seven says, and who as I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear not, neither be afraid. Have I not told thee from that time, and have I not declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. And so the trial resumes, and it starts with a challenge. Um, it's not worded the way that I typically think of a challenge, but the idea that's being expressed is, 
anyone that thinks that they are up to the same standard or the same capability as Jehovah, let them say so. Let them step up and confront Jehovah. That's the challenge that's being issued in verse 7. It says, And who, as I call, or as I shall call and declare it and set it in order for me? And so he's basically saying, Step up and confront me. If you think you're as good as Jehovah and is capable, then say so. And then he goes on and he says, let's start with the Jewish people. He mentions in the King James, the ancient people. God chose Israel. And he's saying, if you want to challenge me, start with my people, the Jews. Challenge me on that. And no one steps forward. And then he goes one more step and he says, Tell about the things that shall come and show them unto them. And so you start out, you're going to confront Jehovah. You're going to start with his people, and then you're going to move into future events. And no one steps forward. And so God has made his case, and then he makes an interesting statement. He tells Israel or Jacob again don't be afraid you're my witnesses now think about this for a minute this is a message to a people that are gonna happen you know they're gonna come about in a couple hundred years and they're gonna be returning from exile what would be typical human reactions and feelings to having been in exile and then coming out of exile and hearing God say, don't be afraid, you're my witnesses? Uncertain? Uncertain? I think so. What else? Well, it is, but it isn't, okay? It is a prophecy that is being written well before they went into exile. But it's being written, and, and part of the reason we know this is, you've mentioned it a couple times, Cyrus is mentioned. No, they're thinking. In fact, what, and part of the reason I wanted to bring that up is if we go through a traumatic experience, it leaves us with doubts. It leaves us with questions. Um, typically, when something bad happens, uh, a lot of people say, God, why did you let this happen to me? The Jewish people are probably having some of those same thoughts when they get to returning from exile. The time of Isaiah, they probably are kind of clueless because most of us would be. But the exiled that are returning, which is who he's addressing in this passage, uh, which makes it a little harder for us to say, okay, how does this, this tie together? those people are probably having some serious doubts about their God. And yet he says, you're my witnesses. And if I was being real cynical and typical human nature, um, I think the words that a Jew might express, and they probably would express it today when you consider the Holocaust and all the horrors that they've been through, is God, if I'm your witness, 
can we negotiate a better witness protection plan? Okay, because this is, this is rough. And, and it is, but part of the problem is our sinful nature. That's what God's dealing with. It's not that he's incapable. It's not that he doesn't care. It's that their own sin brought upon them. And in Deuteronomy, um, Moses describes for them, if they obey God, they'll be blessed. If they disobey God, they will experience the curse. And part of that curse was they would be taken in exile. And so what we have here is as part of this trial, he's saying, Israel is my chosen servant. I've formed them. I'm going to protect them. Now, they're going to basically have thoughts of, well, I'm a little concerned because I got put in exile. But that's because of their own sin. It's not because of God. It's not because he's not powerful enough. And he says, don't be afraid. I'm going to protect you. Now, his protection and our idea of protection probably differ a little bit. Um, he knows what's going to happen in the future. We don't. And so his comment at the end of both of these two verses is, there's no God beside Jehovah. And when we look in the New Testament, we're given consolation in a very similar way. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall death, shall these various tortures? And the answer is no. And God's trying to reassure them that he's going to be watching out for them, but it's not gonna happen the way that we like to have it happen. We like the fairy tale ending where everyone lives happily ever after. Well, that doesn't happen in a sin-cursed world. And so God has highlighted the fact they are his witnesses. As imperfect as they are, he's judging them. But what is important to note is that his judgment is not an attempt to destroy them that he's going to protect them and that there's no other God. And so he again highlights the fact that he is the one true God, the only true God. And he brings us to the trial of the idols again. And so verse nine picks up with the foolishness of idolatry. And we'll read verses nine through 11 and probably stop there says, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witness. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or a molten graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are all of men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. And so the first thing that he points out is the foolishness of idolatry. It's foolish because of its end result. What is the end result of worshiping idols? I'll give you a hint. There are two words that are repeated multiple times in this passage. Steve? Okay. That is actually the very first one. They're nothing. They're empty. They're vain. He mentions this, they shall not profit, that is profitable for nothing. And so it highlights the emptiness that Steve brought up, the fact that this idol isn't going to profit them. 
Um, it's vanity. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. What's the second thing that's going to happen for those that worship idols? Shame. It's mentioned three times. There's no profit, but there will be shame. These are all tied to the vanity of this. Notice in verse 9, the very last phrase, they may be ashamed. Verse 11, the very first phrase, <coughs> all his fellows shall be ashamed. And then the end of verse 11, they shall be ashamed together. And so very quickly, as God has issued the challenge for any idol to come forward and confront him, if they think they can be the kind of God that Jehovah is, he very quickly then turns and says, well, let's look at idols. They're nothing, they're vain, they're empty. They won't profit and there's going to be shame. We'll go ahead and we'll move a little bit further because it's a continuing thought that Isaiah has here. He basically highlights the fact the idolaters have a foolish heart. Notice in verse 12 through 17, he's going to go through how the idol is built. He says, the smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashioneth it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, he marketh it with a fine line, he fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it with a compass, maketh it after the figure of man, according to the beauty of man, that it may remain in the house. He hewed him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest, he planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part in the fire, with the part that eateth flesh, and roasteth roast and is satisfied, yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image, he falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, deliver me for thou art my god. So why is the idol worshiper foolish here? Okay, it's all him. It's everything that he can create. Now, can he create a living being? It's still nothing, absolutely. It's kind of interesting to me. Isaiah goes through a pretty lengthy description of how this idol's made. He starts with the finished product and works back to the beginning. He's starts at the point that they are covering this image, whatever it may be, with, with metal, with gold. And then he goes back to, before that, the carpenter had to form whatever it was that they were going to gold plate. And then he goes back to, and someone had to plant it. And so it's all man's works that are going into making this idol. And he highlights the fact that this idol is made by man. And so the first thing that's noticed is the fact that it's not greater than man, it's basically inferior to man because man made it. Steve? That's a good point. Everything that's used to make this idol is materials that Jehovah, the one true God, provided. 
And so we have idols are made by man, and here's the process. And they don't get any better than that. But the other thing that I thought was kind of ironic, and the irony I think is missed by those that make idols, the same wood used to provide warmth and food, half of it goes to that, and half of it goes to making the idol. So you chop down a tree, and part of it is used to actually provide something that sustains you, and the other part is vanity. And so the foolishness of idolatry is being pointed out here that there's a whole lot better use for that wood and that energy to feed and provide for yourself than to make an idol. Well, if you would, in two weeks, we'll, we'll pick up again, and we'll pick up in verse 18, because there's still some more to, to look at on idols, but I hear people getting restless out in the hall, so we ought to close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that points us to Jesus and points us to the one true God. And Father, as we have considered today the fact that you watch over us, that we're in your hands and nothing happens to us except that you permit it, just like you do with, with Israel. Father, help us to trust you and just to put our complete confidence in you and not in the idols that so easily might beset us. We pray that as we go into the worship service that Christ would be exalted and that we would honor him and, and show gratitude for the salvation and the fact that he's redeemed us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.